Hi there, I'm Colin Brazier. For more than 30 years in TV journalism, I've done interviews at the end of which have often reached that stage where I've thought, if only we could do a little bit more. Well, today we get to do a little bit more. My inaugural podcast guest is somebody I hope you're familiar with, and I hope you're going to get to know a little bit more through the course of the next hour or so. Somebody I'm a great admirer of, somebody who metaphorically is willing to cross the road for a fight, but literally and in person is a model of civility, if not even old-fashioned chivalry. A person who has deeply held convictions and who, when it comes to arguing, is somebody willing always to go back to first principles, which I think is very, very important as we try to argue and tease through some of the more sensitive issues of the day. He is Calvin Robinson, who joins me now. Calvin, welcome to you, and thanks so much for being here. I do appreciate it. Colin, that was the kindest introduction I've ever had. That it's all downhill from Thank here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the captioning thing, how we describe people, is difficult. TV, yeah. the grammar of TV, militates against complexity. Yeah. And actually, we boil people down to these little phrases. So I'd like you to start by helping with the, with the caption. I'll give you 10 words. Okay. What are the 10, up to 10 words to describe what you stand for and, and what you represent? Oh, okay. Um, freedom, civil liberties, democracy, civility, uh, and good old-fashioned Christian values. Okay, the good old-fashioned was just took you over the 10-word the ten, ten limit, but we, we, we get the gist. <laughs> As I was walking here... I was. I think. What is this podcast for? I thought to myself, and I thought it's for this. It's for this. It's so that my um, my teenage daughters, in particular, who I sit with on a Sunday afternoon, with having slaved over a Sunday roast, uh, who are, who think I'm exactly wrong mm. about everything right. when it comes to current affairs, the culture wars, identity politics, um, the role of family and faith. This really pisses me off yeah. because I've gone to a lot of trouble to have them. And I want to keep them close mm. ideologically. Yeah. I and mean, I think some people would find that idea revolting. I don't want to keep them in a gilded cage, but I want to think that actually I can impart something to them. Yeah. So how do we help that generation who think that family has no role, who think that faith has no role, who think that it's year zero when it comes to what your sexuality is? Mm. How do we begin to help them? Oh, there's so much to break down there. First of all, um, I can see where you're coming from. And I, I hear this so often that people reach out and say, you know, my kids are no longer talking to me because either they've gone woke or they think I'm a bigot. And there's a massive divide in the generations right now, bigger than I think there has been in a long time. And it is because we've forgotten those values of family values and Christian values and, and what makes a society tick. I think that family is the first community. I think from that, we, we have our local community, then we have the parish, then we have you know, our company that we work for or the country that we live in, but we can't have any of it without the family. And you're quite right in that you should be wanting to pass on your values because that's the job of a parent. You're, you're raising, you're bringing up young people with the values that you subscribe to. And that used to be Okay. In fact, that used to be... Calvin, do you think men are hesitant about that role now? Do you think they don't want to be seen as a patriarch? Yeah. Well, it's not just because of the sexism argument, but also because of the role of family and the role of the state. So, as you know, I was a deputy head. I used to work in schools. And quite often, teachers would say, yes, but you have to be careful because we're sending these kids home. We don't know what they're learning when they're at home. And it's this idea that the state knows what's best for young people and the state has the right values to pass on and parents are old-fashioned, bigoted and not to be listened to, in fact, to be undermined. And it used to be the case that 
parents were the first educators and the state school system was supplementary. It was to help. Uh, some, sometimes people saw it as a bit of a childminder, but now it is the primary job of the state to educate kids and parents are getting in the way. And we've, we've gone upside down and that's a problem. I think you're right in that we're, we're looking at male figures differently, um, not just the paternal side of things, but also a lot of children don't have a male role model in the, in the household anymore. And even addressing that is seen as problematic. For me to say that you know kids need a female role model and a, and a male role model for different reasons, even saying that is considered bigoted. Let's look. I mean, I, I've got no sort of plan for how we talk about these yeah. things and uh, other than to say, let's, let's treat it organically. And if, yeah. we, if it leads off in one direction, then we'll go in that direction. Uh, I've, I've moderated debates in my previous job at Sky um, around gang culture, and, and I've seen sort of producers slightly wince when I've talked about the missing male role model. Yeah. Uh, it seems obvious to me. I think it probably seems obvious to you. If there is no dad there, I grew up without a father. Uh, and I'm acutely sensitive to being a, the right dad to my son, yeah. the right dad to my daughters. I see that as a, a huge privilege to be in that position. I take it very seriously. But it just seems to me common sense that if you take away that, that principal barrier that teenage boys in particular bang up against, then you're going to have trouble. Of course. And people will look for it elsewhere if it's not in the home. But it's not just common sense. It is backed up by data. You know, the CSJ have done reports. Uh, Legatum Institute have done reports. There are, there's lots of evidence that suggests if a family breaks down before a kid reaches 18, they're twice as likely to fail at school. They're twice as likely to end up in prison. And they're more than twice as likely to have mental health issues and end up homeless. These things we know, but we're not allowed to talk about them. And I think... You should be allowed to address the positives of a stable family without people assuming that you're undermining a single parent family. So I'm from a single parent family myself as well. I, I understand how difficult it is for you know, a single mother to raise two kids and have to do both roles, which is why I see it as so important to encourage a, a bigger family if possible. That's not saying that people can't do it on their own if circumstances put them in that position. And we, we need to be a bit more charitable and on both sides and accept that we're not undermining one argument by promoting another. There is an ideal family situation. Let's talk about teaching. Um, last, in the last couple of weeks, there's been stories about a school that banned meat from the menu. And not only that, stopped the kids bringing in meat in their packed lunches, which seemed a draconian step way too far. Uh, a head teacher teach, treating her school as a kind of ideological fiefdom. That felt all wrong. We had another school where primary school kids were invited to write on a whiteboard words to describe unkind words, it's fair saying, Boris Johnson. Both examples at primary school level of what felt like ideological indoctrination of the blank slate yeah. of young minds. Um, I think it's always happened, Calvin, to some degree. Or at least it ha it's happened in my lifetime. I remember, you know, in Bradford, in a in a inner city school and at a comprehensive later. I, I think that some teachers did see it as a perk of the job mm. to, to to share some of their values as they saw it. Yeah, I don't know. How you stop it. Well, it goes back to your earlier question of how do we uh, fix this generational gap? And I, I don't think we can. I think this current generation might actually be lost because the indoctrination is so rife. Um, because it's not just activists anymore. It's not just teachers who think that they have the right opinion. It's fundamental in the way that we're teaching. So teacher training colleges are pushing woke ideology. When I was training to become a teacher, they told us things like, you know, don't call them pupils. Uh, they are learners. And you're not the teacher. You're there to facilitate their learning. Um, it got as far as saying don't call them ladies and gents, which I think is aspirational to, you know, to avoid a gendered language. Um, if a pupil is being is behaving badly, it's not bad behaviour. It's a form of um, communication. So you shouldn't issue punitive 
um, you know, sanctions. And all of this is, is, to me, it's mental. But this idea is being pushed on teachers as they train, but then as they graduate, even if they're not politically active, they're downloading resources to teach because we don't use textbooks in the classroom anymore. And these resources on the biggest websites like TES are full of what I would call woke indoctrination, but other people might say, you know, social justice courses, um, CRT, um, queer theory, gender theory, all of the all of the issues you would expect to be there in lessons that they don't need to be in. Um, so at this point, all of our teach all of our kids are facing this day in the day out. So the the answer is to fix it for the next generation. Well, I think you're being a bit nihilistic and a bit defeatist. You might be right, of course. Uh, and I think back to someone like my late wife, who, when she was a student at Bristol, was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party and did that, off, you know, fairly commonplace journey from the hard left to a position that was much more mainstream and quite socially conservative, I think, in a lot of respects. Here's the thing. She was clever, Calvin. She was a clever woman. And she went back to first principles. She read a lot of novels. I'm terrified that kids aren't... And it seems a very marginal and small yeah. point, but I think novels and literature are great manuals for life and roadmaps for life. And I worry that actually a lot of the kids that you think are lost may be lost because they're not able... They're not endowed with the skills to look at the world and arrive at their own solutions. They're just taking on this stuff lock, stock and barrel. They're not thinking through the problems that the human condition presents them with. No, you're right. And how often do we hear, you know, kids are leaving school without being able to read and write now? How often do we hear that? And people are blaming schools or blaming the education system. When again, it comes back to, if you want your kids to read, read with them and yeah. encourage them to read. But what about thinking critically, Calvin? I want them to think critically as well. Yeah. It's a difficult one because people always say, well, we should teach kids how to think and not what to think. And that is true to some extent, but we teach that we do pass on a canon of knowledge and that canon is important. And when we're raising so many important novels that have shaped our language and our culture because they're no longer culturally appropriate, you know, they're, they're no longer seen as politically correct. When we're erasing the canon, kids have very little to learn from. So th the access to information is limited now. Uh, my, my kids think I'm a bore for lots of reasons. One of the reasons I principally bore them is, for instance, if we were watching um, a program like Poldark, they're, they're big Very friends of Poldark. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Uh, and I'll say it's a 1750s coaching in in the wilds of, of Cornwall. And I don't think the lady serving drinks in the tavern would be black. Right. I right. just don't, I don't yeah, think that no. would be true, guys. And they say, oh, dad, she probably was. And I say, look, I, I, I get the idea that says, let's, let's create jobs, diverse jobs, etc. Let's even make people who aren't white British comfortable with their island story. I get that. But don't, let's not pretend that somehow that's representative of Britain in 1750, because it's pretty unlikely. No. And that's not how they think. That's not what they've been taught to think. No. They think that was Britain. But that's, that's rubbish. That's not necessarily critical thinking. That's a, a lack of truth. And truth comes, underlines everything that we're talking about today. Truth is, you know, it's gone subjective now. We used to look for the universal truth. We used to explore the truth and try and find it. That's what the pursuit of knowledge used to be. But now people are inventing their own truths. And, and the fact that, you know, kids will be saying, yeah, of course there were black barmaids in, in those days, tells me that they don't know that that wasn't the case. They say they could have been, and of course they could have been. But they almost certainly weren't right. in that, you, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's statistically improbable. But yeah, it, but it's because we've been afraid of addressing the truth on so many issues that I, I won't bring up because it will just raise so many alarm bells. But when you're afraid to address the truth because you're going to be called a transphobe, a homophobe, a racist, 
whatever phobia is there is, then you no longer speak it. And then when people aren't speaking the truth, people don't hear it. And the younger generation just assume that what they're being told is the truth and that everything is about my truth. It's, oh, it frustrates me so much because there is only one truth. Kelvin, it seems to me one of the problems is that we live in an era where, in this country at least, there is a profound religious illiteracy. And you see it all over. Um, there was, uh, I remember sitting through a film, Master and Commander, Russell Crowe, Napoleonic seafaring, daring do, wonderful, recommend it highly, along with the books that are behind it by Patrick O'Brien. And there's a scene where the crew are gathered together on deck to uh, to commit a body to the deep, but they say the Lord's Prayer in doing it. And my nephew, who was in his early 20s, uh, had never been church going, didn't really recognise the most important piece of literature in the English language, namely the Lord's Prayer. And that depressed me hugely, because whether you're a, a God-botherer like me and you, you should, there are certain parts of your identity, your, your national identity, your cultural identity, that you should be aware of. Well, it's cultural capital, isn't it? And this is actually one of the biggest dividers in our society. So we have a growing upper middle class, and we seem to have lost social mobility because in, in private schools or in really fancy schools, you will learn a lot through osmosis. And in the really good state schools, even in the very deprived areas, the schools like Catherine Burblesing's Michaela, the ones where you actually pick up on that stuff, they teach it explicitly. And what they're looking at is, what are the things that, you know, it's rich dad, poor dad. What are the things that rich, rich dad's kid will learn that poor dad's kids won't learn? And how do we bridge that gap? And it's things like the Lord's Prayer. It's things like Jerusalem. Um, and these used to be given in all schools across the country. And we've lost that cultural capital because of a misunderstanding of the word inclusive or inclusivity. Um, we've watered down our own values in order to no longer offend people with other values. Instead of saying all are welcome to come and be British, it doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, these are the values that we subscribe to. If you want to come and ad adhere to them, brilliant, come and join us. Instead of saying that, we said, oh, we don't want to uh, look like we're pushing our own views on you and we don't want to offend you with your different views. So we'll take on board some of yours and actually forget about some of ours. And that is problematic. Yeah, just in the classroom, just paint a picture of what that actually looks like. Because I'm guessing you're into sort of Michael Gove's, yes, you have to give kids a, a, a spine with dates on. Actually, rivers and lakes and capital cities do matter because otherwise they don't have a template for looking at the world rather than doing endless human geography. Yeah. I mean, every state school in this country has an obligation to teach, well, not to teach, to en engage in some act of corporate worship every day. The vast majority of them no longer do that. Um, they have an obligation to promote British values. The vast majority of them will undermine British values. And on a day-to-day -day basis, that's, that presents itself in different ways. But what it comes down to is that we have laws and we have guidance in how schools should act, but we don't actually follow through with them. So we, we've lost our way in that, in that aspect. Michael Gove's curriculum reforms were fantastic, but then ever since then, we've had education secretaries that weren't necessarily interested in the, the portfolio. They were you know, there for different ministerial reasons. Uh, so they didn't have the same rigor that he had. Um, and we had a broad and balanced curriculum implemented by him that's been watered down over the years. It, we need someone to pick it up and say, yes, these things are important. These, like you say, these dates, these, you know, events helped shape this nation into where we are today. And we can't just start from year zero, as many people would have us do. You know, we can't just erase the past and say we're better now, because that's arrogant and naive. We are not better now than our forebears in many ways. We need to learn from the mistakes that they made. Otherwise, we'll make the exact same mistakes today. I was talking to Claire Fox, of, who, of whom I'm a great admirer recently, and she's a natural Republican. Hmm. But <clears throat> I sensed even in her an unease about the drift of Republicanism, if that meant replacing a figure like 
the Queen or a future King Charles III, around whom the nation can coalesce. We have to have national stories that we can agree on. We have to have national anthems that we can agree on. Uh, we, we need a canon, as you, as you say, of figures from history, even our present day history, in the form of a monarch perhaps, I would suggest, around, on whom we can agree. I worry that uh, once the Queen has gone, that's not going to necessarily be the case. And I'm a great fan of Prince Charles. I'm just not sure, uh, as the, the current trajectory of the polls suggests, we will have a monarch in 50 years' time. Yeah, one of the least popular things I've ever said is that I'm not a fan of Prince Charles. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I'm a big monarchist, a big royalist, but I don't support him personally, which is problematic. Have um, you met him? No. Yeah, I, I think he's terrific. I think yeah. he's thoughtful. I know the argument's against him, that he dabbles where he shouldn't and yeah. gets involved and all the rest of it. But I think... Uh, if there's one thing that, as a former royal correspondent, I could say to the royal family is don't go too modern, don't go too yeah. Sussex, keep glad handing. You know, he does literally, I think it was 500 engagements last year. The Queen has been physically eyeballed and seen by tens of millions of people in this country. And actually, they then tell their neighbours and their friends, I saw the Queen, wasn't she lovely? Don't obsess about the online stuff. Don't obsess about the modern tech. Keep physically going to places. Sorry, I Yeah, interrupt. no, absolutely. Keep tradition alive. That's how they do it. Um, but you're right, because look at other countries, how they maintain their unity. So America, for example, they have the flag and they all, it's quite superficial uh, from our perspective, but they all have an allegiance to the flag. They swear this allegiance in schools and it's something that unites us and they have a strong cultural identity. What I find fascinating about America is that it doesn't matter, it's like an immigrant country. It doesn't matter where your family were from. They all identify as American first and foremost. And I love that. Whereas over here, we've lost some of that. Again, that's been watered down over the years. What does it mean to be British? And the queen or the, the, the monarch, the sovereign, is that identifying figure that we can all unite behind. We can't necessarily identify British values because they're not as tangible because our country has evolved over centuries and millennia, whereas it's not, a, it's not a newfound country like America where they have a very explicit constitution. Um, so it's harder for us to pin what we believe in um, into words, but we know it when we see it. And we do need a figurehead for that belief structure, and that is Her Majesty the Queen. When you hear that sneering tone in the voices of Radio 4 comics at 6.30, sneering about the Queen, sneering about people who believe in Brexit, sneering about what David Goodhart called somewhere as people hefted mm. to a community who maybe don't have the ambition or the, the labour market flexibility that highly credentialed, highly educated, highly mobile, highly paid people have. What do you feel? Sad, more than anything, because there's a massive disconnect. And these people you just described, I call them the metropolitan liberal elite, just for, just for ease, but it is this, seems to be a very Westminster bubble. Um, you know, there is like, it's not. It's all over the country. Universities, towns and cities. Academias, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's a certain class of people that look down the nose on the rest of the country, on the majority of people in this country. And I do think it's dangerous because these people are in positions of influence, whether it's by design or accident, you know, our politicians, mainstream media and our lecturers in academia are all the ones who are talking down our country rather than talking it up. And I think a lot of it comes from some kind of what we call you know, white guilt, this idea that we've got such a bad history that we need to uh, avoid it. But that, again, it, that's not how we avoid mistakes in history. It's about taking on board the good and the bad of our history and uh, learning from it. And what troubles me in that is that it's divisive. And again, I see it in schools when we're, when we're telling young black kids that they are victims, they're oppressed, they'll never make it in life. 
And if you tell any young person something as negative as that, as often as they're told it, they will start to believe it and it will self-perpetuate. And then, of course, we're telling young white kids that they are the oppressors, they're racist, they're the bad guys. And some of them will feel resentful to, to, the, to themselves. Some of them will feel resentful to the people they're allegedly oppressing, that they don't feel that they are. And we're causing a racial divide. We're causing class divides. We're, we're causing gender divides. Um, so every single immutable characteristic is being used to split us up. I don't, I don't know if it's on purpose or not, but I just feel we need to take a step back, gain some perspective and think, what are we actually trying to do here? And what are these metropolitan liberal elites trying to do here? Because I think a lot of them are actually well-intentioned. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Definitely well-intentioned. But in all, if you go back to first principles, which is always helpful, I think, if you try and always be empirical and reach for, keep reaching for the truth. So, for instance, uh, this week was the anniversary of the death of Jethro Tull. I wonder how many of the kids that you taught have heard of Jethro Tull. Uh, their lives, actually, though they, though they don't know it, are different because of his life. He invented the seed drill in the 1700s. It put, ultimately, it began a process that put food in the bellies of millions of British people and created the agricultural revolution that was then led on, arguably, to the industrial revolution. My point is that that natural genius, uh, we created something on this island, whether it was contract law, whether it was uh, um, free speech and pluralism, uh, whether it was, it was a legal system that enshrined patents, Whatever it was, we produced more uh, inventors that ch who changed the world than pretty much pound for pound any country in the world. Yeah. Let's celebrate that. Let's not deny it. Let's not pretend that somehow everything that's happened here that's good is a product of exploitation of other people. Some stuff came full thrown from the soil of our own land, and we need to celebrate that. I digress. I want to use the word dangerous. I want to talk about danger in the context that you face personally. Because I think that when you strike out, as you have done, you, you need some moral courage. You're going to face the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and you're going to lose friends. Mm. Tell us about what it's been like. Um, I try not to dwell on it, to be honest, because it's, <laughs> it is difficult. Um, you know, it started around Brexit, I think. Well, no, even before that. It started when I was teaching, and... Um, bef well, before teaching, I used to work in technology and I was surrounded by people of, you know, different political pers persuasions and everyone got on and we all had a drink on a Friday after work and that was great. And I thought that's what the world was like. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't. I entered teaching and found out that certain industries are very narrow-minded. And I was one of very, very few conservatives, well, in teaching in general, but especially in my school. And when people found out that I was conservative. I was all of a sudden, it's like I was on the Axis uh, side in the war. It was, it was any time the conservative government announced anything or implemented a policy that people didn't like, it was, all, it was like it was my fault personally for having voted for that party. Uh, so that's when it first started. But then over Brexit is when I actually started to lose true friends and long-term friends because having supported Brexit and campaigned for Brexit for what I think were very honourable reasons, people just naturally painted me as either xenophobic, racist, uh, little Englander, you know, all the derogatory terms without, often without engaging, but often cutting me off after years of friendship th through something very, very, well, obviously it wasn't trivial, but without, without a conversation. And I found that quite difficult. And but to be honest, it just made me go further and harder. Well, it's the thing that they don't realise. It puts iron in your soul, doesn't it? Yeah. But yeah. it's not helpful either because... 
we're not always right and we do often make mistakes and we need to engage with people who are different to us in order to find out where we stand. And when people on the opposite end of the spectrum are no longer willing to engage, we could end up swaying further into the, into the wrong direction. And I find that quite often I have to self-reflect and do I actually want to say this this way or am I trying to just trigger people or is this, is this what I genuinely believe or have I been pushed into this opposing view by people who think I'm a monster? And we have to constantly self-reflect because there's no, there's no dichotomous view being put across in a, in a, in a well-meaning, well-intentioned, open conversation. I, I say to <coughs> secular friends, there are so many good reasons to be a God-botherer um, there are best of bad reasons, but one of the good reasons is that inclination towards examination of conscience. I'm not saying it's a, an exclusive preserve of, right. of, of the godly, but if you are taught to exercise humbly mm. with humility uh, an, an examination of your conscience, is what I just said stupid, bad, wise, impatient, etc., etc., etc.? If that's you know, it can be a recipe for self-doubt and indecision. But I think it does make you a more honourable competitor in the the market for ideas. Um, but I think we've lost that habit to a great degree. And it's left us with a situation where you're not only wrong, you're bad yeah. for your enemies. Well, um, I try to always engage on the facts. Like you say, first principles. I try not to fall into ad hominem or anything petty like that, even if my enemy engages in that. And I use the word enemy loosely there, the people that I'm debating. But even then, we fall into that trap. And you pulled me up quite rightly, actually, on, on your show recently. When I, when I was debating someone, I used the word darling. And that could seem very patronizing, could seem very condescending. It's not appropriate for the conversation we're having. You said, Calvin, we don't do that here. I was like, thank you for that, because that's what we need, pulling ourselves up on the same side of the argument, et cetera. Whilst recognizing that it's a debate and people get into it, and, we, and you know, it can't, it's not an essay. No. You know, it's an argument. But even then, so afterwards, I apologized to the lady on Twitter. I said that, I apologized for that. That was Did quite you? uncouth. And she said, actually, I quite enjoyed it. But, but just having that ability to apologize and then to forgive, that is important too. And we've lost forgiveness and we've lost repentance. We, we, we're all so ego-driven and we think we're always right and we don't want to appear weak by apologizing. It's so important to say sorry when you are wrong because how else do we meet a middle ground? We've talked about schools uh, and the, forma the formative impact they have on young minds. Can we just talk about universities? Yeah. Um, in my more uh, bleak moments, I just think the whole system's a crock and needs, you know, defund the BBC, defund the universities. Clearly, we can't do that. But there is something wrong with what feels like a, as, as um, John Lydon, uh, formerly of the Sex Pistols, said the other day, is just a sort of factory for producing... Uh, flabby minds who do not think things through in a way that life requires. And, and, and it does feel like an ideological sausage factory sometimes. They all believe the same thing. Um, well, we could defund the universities. You know, Trump tried that. He said, if you brand your university as racist, well, we won't fund you because we don't want to fund racist institutions. And then they stopped calling themselves <laughs> racist. <laughs> so there is a way around that. Um, I think the, the chap from the Sex Pistols is, is right on. And I think it's good that, you know, he's one of the last true rock stars who rebelled against this the, the establishment rather than aligning themselves with it as we see now but as for how do we fix academia uh promoting free speech encouraging free speech and not just saying you can't undermine it but actively so not passively but actively encouraging free speech on campus you know having free speech champions 
uh, on each university campus, but also in the government having a free speech champion. Uh, that it was a proposal that the government put forward a couple of years ago. They were going to have a SAR for free speech. Hasn't happened yet. It would be good if it did. They could say, look, if your university is stifling your free speech or is cancelling or deplatforming people that are coming to speak, then you have some way of holding them to account, whether that's fiscally or on some kind of rating system. Mm. But they have to be accountable uh, because it is all one group thing. And even when it isn't, even when there are um, so-called loose cannons, you know, like Jordan Peterson and people like that, that will speak out or will speak for the truth against the orthodoxy, they either get cancelled or if they're not as brave as him, they just go quiet. But it's such a it's such a monoculture, isn't it? The the higher education sector. I mean, I know you've got the sort of Buckingham's of, of, yeah. of, of higher education, but it's it's a solitary institution, yeah. and even it's not that different. And I've wondered, and this comes back to where we began about the risk of being seen as a patriarch. I'm coughing up quite a lot of money for, for the, the daughters of mine who are at university, paying for their accommodation, which is pretty bog standard, and mercifully I can afford to do that. But I get no say. I get all the responsibility and none of the rights of choose. They get to choose, yeah. and they choose on a variety of bases, not least where will I have the most fun. Um, I, I'm not advocating for, for the avoidance of doubt. I'm not advocating a situation where if there were sort of more socially conservative universities, more Catholic universities, for instance, as in America, mm. um, that, that fathers and mothers and fathers should say to their kids, I'm only going to fund you if you go to this place and you wear a gown and you're in bed by 9.30 every night. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to see some restoration of the idea that I'm on the hook, therefore I get a say. Well, I like that idea, uh, which is why we should avoid so-called free tuition fees, because uh, there has to be some element of responsibility there. Um, we could set up our own universities. And when I say we, I mean people on the right or conservative thinking people could set up their own. That's difficult. We could set up PPHs um, or we could just start to take them over. And I think the reason we got into this position in the first place is, you know, Gramaskian entryism. Yeah. It's the long march through the institutions. Yeah. We need to reclaim some of these positions, whether it's in government or in academia. And we need to stand up more. And I think there are more people. Well, we call it the silent majority for a reason, but I think there are more people in this country that are small-c conservative, that do believe in a universal truth and these values that we hold dear. But the vast majority of them are afraid because if they think if they stand up, they'll get cancelled or get sued. Uh, and we need to give them a way. We need to enable people to be themselves. I mean, the problem with you know, Antonio Gramsci's long march with institutions is it's taken decades yeah. for our ideological adversaries. And it will take us... If it, even if it can be done, yeah. decades to, to reset that balance, even if it can be done. Yeah. And it will be street fighting, bloody street fighting. But that's, I mean, that, that's what I mean when I say this generation's lost, we need to focus on the next generation. We need to bring back textbooks, we need to bring back a canon of knowledge. We need to sit experts around the table and say, what, do, what is the best there has been and what should we be teaching these young people? And put that forward rather than fighting on, you know, it's all well and good me going on TV and saying there are only two genders, but that, that's a, that stokes up a debate. But we really need to go back to the textbooks and say, look, there are two sexes, male and female. These are XY chromosomes, these are X, X chromosomes. This is how it affects you. This is why if you are born born male you should not be competing in a woman's sport because you are going to a be too far physically superior but also you could damage uh, or injure the females that you're competing against all of these things should be in a textbook right there to pass on the knowledge explicitly to the next generation you know that's how we win i want to go back to talking about families and i want to address my particular hobby horse and invite you to agree with everything i'm about to say <laughs> <laughs> which is the idea that um the state needs to recognize that we face a demographic crisis 
And we do. The birth rate in Britain is hovering around 1.5, 1.6. It's never been lower. And people say, you know, why is that, why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Um, you know, women have the right to choose to be the mistresses of their own fertility. And of course, that's wonderful, but except it's only half true. Mm. It, it's, it's to suggest that um, rejecting the coercive control of a male partner who wants you to have lots of children is is fertility choice. Yes, it is, but it's in one direction. There's another fertility choice, which is that we've got in excess of 100,000 women every, in Britain who are not having all the children they want. And in many instances, they're not having any children at all. And I look, for instance, at my eldest daughter, 23, uh, with a lot of student debt. Um, well, she's actually got a boyfriend. He's great. Um, uh, but, there are, you know, finding men who aren't commitment phobes in your 20s now as a young woman is, is tough. You've got to show labour mobility, move around the country as you build your career. Think about maybe buying a house. Oh, I'm 30. I'm 32. Tick, 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 yeah. tick. We all know this. What to do. I look at a country like Hungary. There's lots of things that aren't great about Hungary. There's one thing that is. It's pronatal policy is absolutely revolutionary. If if uh, I've got six kids, if if my late wife was Hungarian and we were living in Budapest, we wouldn't pay any income tax. No income tax. They're spending 5% of their GDP on pro-natalism. Um, can we learn anything from those Eastern European countries who've decided that they need to grow their own? We can, but to get back to the, your first point about women having, women having a choice, women don't have a choice. Women have to go to work now because we can't afford to live on one salary anymore. And this is the, what feminism has brought about. It, it aimed for equal rights, but it actually ended up everyone having to work and no one being able to afford to, to in, the, in the 1970s, Calvin, the trade unions used to believe in a living wage, and by that they meant... The, the, the wage that the man took home. Yeah. Unthinkable now. Yeah, ab absolutely. But also, it's considered wrong to promote, as we said earlier, a, f a family. And even the idea of a woman saying, I want to stay at home and raise a family. I want to look after my kids. People will see that as the man putting pressure on her. That they'll see that as her having a backward view. And that's people, again, sneering and looking down their noses at what used to be qu considered quite ordinary. So, yeah, we can absolutely learn from Hungary and Poland and, and these uh, European countries that have stuck to their Christian values. And that's what it is. You know, I was in Croatia a week ago. These countries are still 90 to 95% Catholic in their outlook on, on life. And they can afford to promote the family. They, you know, they pay. You know, even in France, you get paid for if you've got, you get rewards for raising a family of a certain size we could never do that over here because they say why do you hate single mothers or why are you saying that gay people can't raise kids there's always a a, a dichotomous flipping on the head and it's again it's uncharitable and we need to say actually what we're doing here is we're looking at promoting families because this is how we promote our country this is how we have a healthy society a thriving community but again if we flip that on its head as well if we look at what's happening We've got the green agenda. We've got the liberals saying, don't have kids because you want to save the environment. Uh, and a lot of woke people are pushing forward that argument at the moment. Good. Let it, them say that. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the green argument because uh, it, it's fascinating. We're, we're, you know, we are working within the media. We see how these arguments are teased out. And very often it's the arguments that aren't presented. So, for instance, uh, I, mean, I, I wrote a book 10 years ago for, for the think tank Civitas about the growth of the only child culture. Mm. And as you indicate a lot of it is uh, powered by this environmental idea that actually kids are quite bad uh, for the planet. What's really bad for the planet is the fashion for solitary living. Eight million people in the UK now live alone. A lot of them, you know, people like me, widowed, uh, didn't plan on being on their own. Uh, some of them never got married. Some of them, a lot of them, 
got divorced or couldn't make a relationship work. It was terribly sad. Obviously, it's sad. We, you know, but what happens is they then live alone in a house, all the lights and the heating. It's on for one. Mm-hmm. It's not intergenerational, yeah. <clears throat> even less multi-generational with granny upstairs and mum and dad and kids, as actually a lot of <clears throat> immigrant families still do, by the way. They're very green. Mm-hmm. But, but that argument's not even presented. No. The idea that it's, you know, all the environmental gains of reducing birth rates in the UK are offset by the fashion for solitary living. Exactly. And, we, and instead of supporting the family and promoting the family, we make it easier to get divorced. And I understand that people have issues and people need a way out. But at the same time, we're promoting the opposite end of what we should be doing. Um, and re- in regards to, you know, saying that we shouldn't have kids and it's better for the environment, you're quite right. It doesn't work out economically or environmentally. But also, I quite want them to go with the argument. Because if the woke lot are saying we're not going to have kids, the religious people will continue to have children and thrive and we will, we will bal- outbalance them in the end. And and we'll win our society back. Just it, it, doctrinally, I, I mean, you know, uh, I'm a Catholic, you're an Anglican. Yeah. Uh, 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 with the Pope recently said, you know, people prefer to have dogs and cats now rather than, than children. Uh, and, I, you know, I, there's not, this, this Pope's far from perfect, but I enjoyed that intervention. Your lot are totally lost on this, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, where to start? Uh, I, yes. The answer is yes. I got in trouble for saying this recently. The Bishop of London said to me, Calvin, why did you say the church is lost? You're, you're looking to be ordained in this church. My point is, I love the church. I want the church to thrive. And, it, and I'm sad that it's lost. This is why I'm talking out about it. This is why I'm saying we need to refine our Christian values. When, when we're more likely to hear a sermon on climate change or gender dysmorphia than we are on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we know something's amiss. Yeah, well, I agree. I agree. And I've seen the squirming discomfort of colleagues when we've invited guests when I used to be at Sky. Uh, and anybody who used the following words, God, Jesus, Bible, started quoting scripture. Uh, you could you could hear the cringing in the gallery. And I mean, this isn't just news media. Was it Coronation Street that host, that showed a wedding, but said the, as, when they were looking around the church, said, it's a beautiful church, perfect setting. But if we could lose the cross from behind the altar, because that don't want to spook we don't want to scare the horses but this is something i'd like to pull you up on actually as well colin because you say god bother quite a lot and you're a christian no you're right no you're right i mean i i I own it i mean i don't yes i mean maybe i am being slightly apologetic but i think you've got it you've got them no you probably you're probably right but you can shock them and i think there is also um i think within catholicism there is a strain some of my favorite catholics are quite dissolute characters you know they smoke they drink they swear yeah. uh, and they they do not fit that slightly prissy pigeonhole model yeah. that sometimes people uh, secularists want to squeeze us into yeah. should we talk about the media and the, the role that gb news plays mm-hmm. and let me submit this idea to you which is i think that one of the ideas one of the one of the one of the useful byproducts of gb news being around is that it creates a safe space, let's borrow a phrase, yeah. for fellow travellers to, to network and bounce off each other and actually um, make each other a little braver. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see that as our key role. It's giving people permission to be themselves. It's like I said earlier, the silent majority are afraid to stand up. But if they see people saying things that they know to be true, things that they used to be normal, it gives them permission to do the same. And I think that's one of our major roles here. And, you know, we see on Twitter all the time people tweeting, thank you for saying 
this and that, or thank you for being unashamedly Christian, or thank you for, you know, having traditional British values, and, and thank you for wearing a shirt and tie. You know, just all of these things that used to be considered the norm that people are clinging onto and trying to hold onto our tradition because it's being demolished rapidly. Within our lifetime, we've seen so much change. And I know that everyone looks back and, and says, well, it's not like it used to be. But I think within this generation, we've gone from, you know, almost a, a, an agricultural industrial nation into entirely service trade. We've gone from living in communities and parishes where people looked out for each other to being completely globalized in that, you know, I don't know my, well, I do know my next door neighbor, but most people don't know the next door neighbor, but they'll know people online uh, who live miles away from each other. But that always seems like a good thing because, yeah, I know these people and these people share my views, etc. but it's not localized. It's not community-based. You don't have someone who's physically there for you. And of course, it's back to having diversity of thought and opinion. That is so important. If we only, if we silo ourselves, we're, we're causing the division. The idea of wearing a, a shirt and tie, for some people that will seem absolutely irrelevant. Yeah. For me, it's key. Absolutely. And not that I'm wearing one now. But you're wearing a nice suit and it's no, standards. But the, my, my point is about, you say it's standards. I say that formality has a role. I'm going to um, to an event tonight, a, a media awards ceremony. I'll be in black tie. Yeah. A lot of people won't be uh, because they'll feel that's a bit prissy. And um, and these are the same people who would accuse you of probably have been a, a young fogey. Yeah, yeah. He's all he's a bit tweedy. It's slightly affected. I, t- I took my tweed off before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think there is a role for formality, um, you know, whether that's uh, a handwritten note rather than a text. Yes. Um, with the way you dress actually uh, expresses a lot about respect for you. It's not about me, it's yeah. respect for you, or maybe a respect respect for an institution. It's giving off lots of signals that you have to be able to read. I got into a lot of trouble um, three and a half years ago after my um, late wife died. I wrote a piece for The Spectator about the need for formality around death and ceremony around death. And uh, I got a lot of stick. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think, oh, give me a break. My wife's just died. Um, but my point was that uh, I derived enormous comfort from the rubric and the ceremony around a requiem mass. And I hate, I hate a bit strong, I, I'm uncomfortable with some of the ideas around celebrating a life. I understand why people want to do that, but it's rooted in a fear of death. Of course it a is. A deep, deep fear of death. And um, for me, being in a church, uh, feeling connected to a, mil- a millennia of tradition and the rites around last mm. things yeah. felt profoundly important to me. People wearing black in church felt terribly important to me. Oh, we should all have helium balloons and wear uh, Superman costumes. No, we shouldn't because my kids are mourning and they won't get the flippancy. That's quite infantilizing as well, isn't it? But I, I think a lot of the time the left have got eroded our traditions and our values and our standards through saying, you know, people can't afford to dress well or, or we need to make things more accessible. And we do need to make things more accessible, but we need to make it easier for people to afford black tie. We need to make it easier for people to own a copy of the King James Bible if, uh, so they can learn the Lord's Prayer. We need to make it easier for people to access the things, not take the things away. And it comes down to people on the left wanting everyone to have the lowest common denominator and people on the right wanting everyone to have an opportunity to get better things. It's democratising, yeah, it actually, is. isn't it? it? Is. Um, which leads us on to uh, the idea of equality of opportunity rather than equality of of outcome I and mean, it's become a it's become a cliche but tell us why why it really matters the idea that actually it's what you're aspiring to yeah not you know it's not the outcome it's it's, it's the opportunity well it, it was a fundamental british value and i think a lot of people a lot of immigrants moved to this country for that reason uh in fact 
we can see more than anywhere else in education where these values have eroded. Because if you look at, for example, African families that move over to this country quite recently, they still hold these values of social mobility. Like I, I would call it Thatcherism, of, of wanting to better yourself. The idea of bettering yourself, first of all, you have to understand that there is somewhere to go. Whereas the left will say, no, everyone's equal or should be equally poor, in my opinion. But the immigrant families hold dear to those values. Whereas British values, and I mean white British and Jamaican British, uh, black British, whatever you want to call them, at the moment don't hold to those values anymore. And there's no idea that you can move class. There's no idea of social mobility. There's no idea that if, you're, if your parents didn't go to university, you can be the first to go to university. You can, you can get a better job than they had because that's seen as, as derogatory to them somehow. Everyone needs to stay in their place. That's the mentality of the left. Whereas I honestly think, you know, uh, I want my kids to do better than I, I've done. And I think if their kids do better than that, even better. That We want the best for our lineage, for our family. That's what that's why family is so important. And I'm thinking now about Mercy Moroki, RGB News colleague who's of Kenyan heritage, who talks a lot about immigrant optimism. Yeah. And I think she's got a point. I think she also is an exemplar of something coming down the tracks. And I think you're absolutely right about uh, African Britons, British Africans, yeah. who are quite socially conservative, who are deeply aspirational, who... Um, in the form of people like Kemi Badenoch, are starting to filter through now into positions of real authority. And they don't care. You know, they don't care what you call them. They, 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 they are wedded to some eternal verities. They get it. They absolutely get it. And, and we all want nice things in life. And I think if, if the left say, um, you know, the state will help you here, the state will help you there, you become dependent on the state and you don't really branch out. And I think people get stuck in a, in a welfare system. And quite often, they're better off being, being on the welfare system than they are. Uh, so we need to flip the welfare state upside down and say, actually, we'll encourage you to go to work. You'll, you'll be better off if you work. And people want to contribute to society. People want to have a meaning in their lives. People don't want to be stuck at home um, living off a universal basic income. But that's the way that people think they're being kind. And it's not kindness at all. It's actually quite cruel. Um, I want to round up just talking about you and your immediate short-term, medium-term plans, um, not in relation to GB News, that's between you and your agent and our boss, but in terms of where, where you take your life, where you take your message, what medium media you use. You've got a big profile on Twitter. Um, you are a able polemicist. Is it elected office? Is it on the margins here in the media, uh, shouting at people, say some? Is it writing? What is it? What do you do? So I'll be, I'll be completely open and honest here. I've not had a plan for a long time. I've tried to keep my ears open and, uh, and discern on what God wants me to do. I've tried to go through the doors that I feel God is opening to me. So I never set out to be a columnist, but I ended up writing about education. I never set out to be on TV, but I've thankfully been offered a program here that should be launching soon on Faith and Family. And I, throughout this whole process, I've been in the church discerning on holy orders. I'm training for the priesthood. I think that... I'm in a unique position. I have a privilege in that I can get away with saying certain things that other people can't due to my immutable characteristics. I can have conversations around Brexit without the majority of people naturally assuming that I'm racist. I can talk about um, a lot of these BLM issues and, and that kind of thing. So I feel I'm obliged to do so. I don't necessarily enjoy talking about race, but I feel like I have a, a duty to do so. But also on, on education through my history in, in education and consulting for the DfE and stuff like that. So the platform that I've been given I feel I have to use it for good, whether it's Twitter, GB News, or in the papers. 
so I feel that's a form of ministry, but I'm also training for parish ministry as a, as a priest as well. So I, I see my future as part-time in a parish, uh, looking after the cure of souls and part-time in the media, fighting the good fight, uh, trying to put my Christian values forward and affirming them as much as possible. Will I end up doing that? I don't know. Um, I'm in a bit of a sticky situation at the moment because the church hierarchy is incredibly woke. Uh, they don't like people affirming Christian values anymore. Uh, if you if you speak out on Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, you actually get disciplined for it. Um, so what, will I end up being ordained? Uh, will I make it past the gatekeepers? I have no idea. Um, I'll just keep praying on it and see what God has in store for me. Uh, and just a, a final thought. If people listening to this, young men in particular, but young women too, had a bit of an impasse in their lives, feeling that they are out of joint mm. with the cultural mores around them and trying to, your word, discern yeah. a, a route through and a path for the future and maybe find a sense of vocation, not vocation as we would understand it religiously, but in some other aspect of life. How do they go about that process of discernment? Just just guide them through what they ought... I mean, I don't want to get into sort of Californian psychobabble, but, you know... There are there are tough choices out there that people can make if they have the courage to make them. Yeah. Well, it's difficult because it's always easier in hindsight to see what God's plan was for you. It's, it's difficult in the moment to see where you're supposed to go, and especially when you're at a fork in the roads. Um, I would say just try and lose the ego is the biggest um, tip I can give. Like, just try, try to stop focusing on what you want. You know, people often say, people often pray, for example, can I get this, Lord, or help me get to this place, rather than saying, Lord, try and guide, try and help me see your plan for me or try and help me go in the direction that I can best serve you. And that's, that's where I'm at the moment. I'm stuck in that position. I, I want my show to launch. I want to be ordained. I want to be uh, preaching the word, but that might not be God's plan for me. So I'm trying to, instead of, instead of praying for my show to launch, instead of praying for me to get ordained, I'm trying to say to myself in, in my prayers, God, direct me where you need me to be. Isn't there a problem, Calvin? I said that was my final point, but I've got to say this. <clears throat> I was on the underground the other day and I saw an advert saying, uh, with the phrase, love yourself. Um, and I thought that that feels odd. Yeah. Uh, love others, yeah. love your neighbour, um, love your family, love yourself. I respect yourself, sure. You know, polish my shoes, I respect, brush my teeth, I respect myself, love myself. Um, so the culture of self-love and self-realisation, self-actualisation, call it what you like, self-obsession, which I think one of the cures for is actually having kids, by the way. That's yeah. actually quite selfless, yeah. necessarily. It's not easy, by the way. I hate the way it's glamorised. It's mainly tough and often quite horrible. Yeah. But at the root of it is... I think, a want of humility. And if there is one virtue which has fled the public square, it's humility. Yeah. And, and you, I don't know if I, I'm not, it's not for me to say whether I have it, but you have it. Well, thank you. And, I, it's, I think... and, I, and some people would say that as an unkind compliment, and I don't mean it at all. I mean, I mean, I mean it very kindly, and I think it's in short supply. And we need more of it. And you don't see a lot of it online. People are sure they're right when they assert X, Y, and Z. Mm. I think we all have it. It's just that this self-love movement, as you called it, quite rightly, is. I, th I think it's not hyperbolic to say it's quite evil because mm. it's directing us away from God and to ourselves. And people paint it as a well-meaning, well-intentioned thing. Yeah, you should love yourself. You are the most important thing. You are special. You're unique. No, we're not. We're all just people. We're all as bad as each other or as good as each other. We're all fallen individuals. And our focus should be on on God. Our focus should be on something bigger than ourselves, whether it's our community, our family, uh, all of those things lead to God. When we focus on ourselves, we, we push ourselves away from community, family and God. And that's dangerous. And that's why I call it evil.
Calvin, this was my inaugural podcast, and I'm delighted you're here to share it with me. My Thank absolute you so pleasure. Much indeed. Thank you.